Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the Anthropology Channel. This is your host, Aliza Arjan. My guest today is Arjun Shankar, Assistant Professor of Culture and Politics at Georgetown University. We'll be talking about his book, Brown Saviors and Their Others, Race, Caste, Labor, and the Global Politics of Help in India, published recently by Duke University Press. So thank you very much, Arjun, for joining us today. Thanks so much. It's really, really a privilege to be able to talk about this book. It's a long, ter- long time in the making, so can't believe it's out there. <laughs> well, I can believe it, and <laughs> and I'm so excited to talk about it with you today. So, to begin, can you orient our readers to the NGO the book centers on, and how did you come to writing a book about help economies circulating in and beyond India with an eye on race, caste, and labor? It's mm, a big question. <laughs> uh, but, you know, my answer sort of has to start before uh, I even had the idea of this book. Uh, I started out my career as a ninth grade biology teacher. And that was the first thing I did before I even came to get my PhD. Uh, and so there's already a lot of thought in my mind about, about education in particular, right? And so centering a book on an education NGO was an obvious choice for me because I was already very much interested in the various actors within a particular kind of institutional space, in this, kind, in this case, the education space. Um, but on top of that, the second sort of um, set of ideas I was bringing to the table had to do with how I got to being a teacher in the first place. I actually uh, became a New York City school teacher by joining Teach for America, which many in the United States will know is a very problematic uh, not-for-profit that takes uh, uh, students and indeed children who are coming from you know, what they perceive as elite colleges and universities and places them in under-resourced schools. And so my uh, entrance into teaching was a very harsh one. It was one where I realized both the structural limitations of a lot of what, we're, what we understand as education in the United States, but also the problematic nature of the NGO sector and, and, and how that functions. You know? So I was bringing these two kind of uh, ideas to the table when I came to get my PhD at the University of Pennsylvania, which is in education first, and then eventually in education and anthropology as a, a joint degree. Um, so that critique was ringing in my mind. And, and when I, I started my PhD, I didn't really know exactly uh, where I was going to take the work. I, in a lot of ways, I thought, my work would center still on the NGO sector in the United States. But, uh, you know, sometimes as, as luck would have it, things change very quickly. And in my first year as a graduate student, one of my professors uh, invited myself and a colleague to meet these uh, two men, these two Indian men who had come back, who had not come back, who had come from India to sort of um, get people interested in the NGO sector in India and to join as change agents. And, you know, this professor of mine um, sort of thought by default that the two brown men, this colleague of mine, also an Indian man, right, would, would, would naturally connect, right, with the vision, the mission of these two uh, NGO leaders who were coming back to find change agents. And so, Two things happened in these sort of early conversations with these people. Really, on the one hand, I was intrigued and really just fell right into the trap they were laying for me, right? There's something about me, right, as a Indian American, as a brown man, as at this time I wasn't even thinking in caste terms, but as a dominant caste person, right, that they felt would be 
the right figure to lead as a change agent, right? So it had something to do with me. And of course, it felt good, right, to be considered in that way, right? So that was sort of one part of uh, what happened. On the other hand, was this extreme curiosity and critique coming up, right? What is this education NGO sector in India? Why is it burgeoning right now, right? Why are these people coming to the United States, right, to do to find the right people to do this kind of work? And sort of from that set of starting convergences, right, one being very positional and one being about, you know, intellectual curiosity, this project emerged. Now, as it so happens, the it was not the, the NGO that I ended up following was not the NGO that uh, had come to inquire about us. The NGO I ended up following had to do, uh, the reason I ended up there had to do with other positional factors, really, right? Um, it was an NGO located in South India, right? And I'm, I'm Tamil by, by upbringing and birth. And so I wanted to follow an NGO that was in South India and not in other parts of the country, whether it was, you know, Mumbai or Delhi, where some of these other NGOs were located. And the second part of that was the NGO leader of us uh, of uh, a Sahayaka was somebody who reminded me a lot of my own family. He was also a Tamil Brahmin, right? And of course, Tamil Brahminism is a very fraught space for me personally. I, as somebody who's anti-caste, as somebody who really ran away from much of uh, the cultural politics of my, of my birth, something about this person intrigued me anyway. Right. And I wanted to know why this person was in this NGO. And I saw any sort of welcomed me in in a way that was really indicates access and the way that dominant cast networks allow you to get access to these spaces. So in some ways, that's what allowed me to get in was the similarity in positions in the way that he saw me as someone who he, who could understand what he was trying to do. And and so that's how I ended up thinking about the health economies in India and really particularly this this NGO at Sahayaka. Yeah, thank you, Arjun. I think, you know, in your response, you know, even though it's sort of personally grounded, you really captured how your starting point um, really in some ways is mirrored in the book, right? And we'll talk about, for example, the kinds of mobility or why these people, you know, were in the US and inquiring about people like you. But I want to start by asking you about you know, how it felt good, right? How it felt good to be picked for this. And I want to jump right into the book's titular term, Brown Saviorism. You know, and throughout the book, you really explore the contradictions that go into Brown Saviorism. So can you speak to what this term captures for you? And what was at stake for you in grappling with the contradictions of Brown Saviorism? Mm, excellent. Excellent question. Uh, you know, the brown savior is a complicated figure, right? And we oftentimes, this is a this is a work about the help economy, which for me sort of captures an intersection of humanitarianism, development, and poverty alleviation, right? And we know that this particular discourse on the help economies is probably 70 years old, 80 years old, really post-World War II. And associated with that figure are white saviors, right? The people who sort of emerge out of colonialism as those who are going to be do-gooders, who are going to help the other, who are going to go to the third world or the global south, right? And save those who are oppressed without any recognition of history, right? That is colonial histories, why people are impoverished, how educational lack exists in the first place, right? That's the white savior. And we know that white savior when, when we see one, you know, think about Bono or Madonna in some place that they have no understanding of, right? But centered, right? As the figure who's doing the helping and also a kind of emotional resonance that comes from that, right? That is to say the savior feels good when they're saving others, right? They feel like they're on the right side of history. And so if you're thinking about the first part of your question, which is what feels good about saviorism, right? Same thing's happening here. When somebody comes to me and says, do you want to join us to be a change agent? You could be the change. You're the person who could help us make this world a better place. And in this case, make India a better place, right? That feels good. And that's sort of the emotional... Uh, 
basis, right? The emo- let's say emotional infrastructure for how saviorism actually is produced. Now, the second part of this has to do with the brownness of brown saviorism, right? And there are a lot of entry points into that conversation, but the way that I sort of think about uh, brown saviorism has to do with a kind of 21st century uh, uh, change in racial politics and ra- in global racial discourses. And, you know, I started by talking about the white savior, but everybody knows the critique of the white savior now, right? Even those in the health economies all know that you can't have white people going someplace else to save the other, right? It's a critique that's so ubiquitous that it has boomeranged back into that sector itself. So, there needs to be new new strategies for development, developmentalism, humanitarianism, etc. And in that, you see figures, brown figures, brown peoples, who sort of take on leadership roles as a rectification, right? As a way of solving the problem of whiteness in the developmental sector. Now, this is itself problematic, right? Because what it's assuming is that someone who is brown, by their very nature, right, has the skills, has the understanding of context, has indeed the blood, right, and I talk about that a lot in the book, right, the right blood for this work, because, you know, they're more like their peoples, and they're therefore not going to create the same sort of othering that was associated with white saviorism. But when you think about it from, uh, you know, uh, by using a neocolonial critique, right, or thinking about it through uh, neocolonialism, you realize that the brown peoples who are allowed to join these NGOs as leaders have to have imbibed a particular set of uh, uh, values, right, that are associated indeed with colonialism, right? They have to believe in capitalism, right? And in fact, benefited from capitalism, right? They have to believe in particular sort of hierarchies, right? In terms of who needs to be the savior, who needs to be saved. They have to have a particular kind of educational pedigree and skills, all of which could only have occurred if they had themselves benefited from the encounter with colonialism. And you see this all over the world, right? One of the things that I'm arguing is that the brown savior is a figure that you can find in regionally and historically specific ways in contexts as diverse as India, South Africa, uh, Algeria, Turkey, right? And that'll have to do with thinking about what figures were lifted, right? What elites were lifted, right, during the colonial encounter to be like, you know, middlemen for the colonial government, et cetera, et cetera. And they, in this sort of moment of multicultural critique, right, the need for diversity initiatives, the needs for the right people with the right faces in the room, they've sort of, again, benefited because they have the right skills, which we might say neocolonial technocratic skills, but they have also the right skin tones, right, and blood to do this project. And so that's that's really what I'm trying to think about with the the the, the term brown saviorism to track how those how those figures emerge historically and what they do. Now I'll just say in the case of India, of course, when we're thinking about who is going to benefit in particular ways from the discourse on brown saviorism, we have to look at uh, regionally specific categories, right? And in this case, the category that is obscured by brownness, right? That is to say, by being perceived as already having been colonized and then being, then fighting against the colonial power is the category of caste. And we can talk about that more, I hope, later in the later in the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, my next question was about, you know, the kinds of mobility that go into this kind of, you know, lifting of certain brown saviors, right? So one thing I really enjoyed about the book was how, you know, it really nuances different kinds of brown saviors. And sort of an anchor for me in that was how you show us who gets to go where in help economies. So for example, you know, you juxtapose the mobility of the NGO's leadership to the global north to that of mentors working in villages. So can you elaborate on the caste politics that interlace these mobilities and what does the intersection of caste mobility, caste and labor mobility in particular tell us about the work that help economies actually do in the world? Ooh, great question. <laughs> um, Here for the tough questions. Yeah, it's a complicated <laughs> one. Um, but 
a simple, uh, the starting point of a simple answer here is to say that all of the leadership of this NGO Sahayaka were Brahmin. Not surprising, given the kinds of colonial and really pre-colonial politics that are going to shape who has mobility both within the country of India and then who ends up being able to travel, right, to places like the United States. Now, if we're going to put focus on historical travels of Indian Americans, in this case, dominant caste Americans, Savarna Americans, Brahmins, um, Brahmin Americans, what we have to first think about is an intersection of a couple things. Of course, uh, pre uh 1950 1960 right or really pre-1947 we're talking about uh caste politics as they're playing out in british colonial india right and the british had a really fascinating way in all the places they went of utilizing uh already existing categories and racializing them right and so one thing that happened in india is caste supremacy already exists particular kind of stratification and oppressive violence already existed. But the British came and then overlaid another layer, which is to say that, okay, based on your caste position, right, within the caste hierarchy, they really uh, took a singular view of what caste was. Caste is very complicated. It looks different in different regional locations, right? They took a singular uh, version of caste and reified it. And within that, Brahmins became the sort of intellectual labor, right? Brahmins being seen as the priestly caste. What what that meant previously is they could only be priests, right? They couldn't do anything that was viewed as manual labor. But the British came in and they needed people to work as engineering in engineering in particular kinds of positions in their governance structure. So over time, those positions that had been deemed manual, actually traditionally, and therefore Brahmins could not be part of those ended up becoming the ended up being seen as cognitive, right? And intellectual. And so you see particular caste groups benefiting from that. In this case, if we're talking about the leaders of this NGO being Brahmin, we can think about that historical legacy. It's not surprising that most of the people who are leaders of this NGO were engineers, computer scientists, right? So you can see the way that that long-term legacy starts to play out in both in the kinds of jobs that particular caste groups end up being able to do over time, right? Now, the second part has to do with migration. And if you can now think about the fact that under, under British colonialism, certain populations are benefiting from mobility through education. Now, if we think about the United States 1965 Immigration Naturalization Act, we know that the the major thing, the major shift was to allow for migration based on education, right? This is the big change. So it's not surprising then that many of the Indian Americans, Hindu Americans, right, who are coming to the United States are going to be well-educated, have to be well-educated, and therefore are going to have to be dominant caste, right? Because those are the ones that were benefiting from a particular kind of educational mobility in India itself. So when you think about that, then the global subject of the brown savior will very likely be dominant caste right? Because they're the ones who have had mobility. That doesn't mean that there are not exceptional cases to that, but as a kind of general principle, that's what you'll see. And then you'll also see, of course, that they've imbibed colonial values and neo-colonial values. Why? Because they will have likely gone to particular kinds of schools and universities in India, and they will likely have gone to those same kind of schools and universities in the United States, right? So that's why I give that example very early in the, in the book, where you see these leaders, right? And half of them were computer scientists in the United States who had traveled from, traveled from India. The other half are graduates of Yale, right? <laughs> who, who also have imbibed a particular kind of techno-financial financialism that they're now bringing to the NGO sector. So that's that group, right? Weirdly at the highest rungs of the NGO, mimicking uh, caste hierarchy. And then... Again, not surprisingly, if you look at the hierarchies within the NGO, the next rung are uh, what we're, what are mentors, right? The field working class. These folks come from villages in Karnataka, usually around Bangalore, 
families who are usually uh, traditionally farming castes, right? Vokaligas uh, and Lingayas in this case, who actually sit very similarly to uh, caste hierarchy at the next rungs down, right? So they're doing the field work. They're seeking mobility through the NGO, but their mobility is rural-urban, right? They're seeking opportunities to work in Bangalore, where this education NGO is housed. They're seeking a kind of uh, economic mobility through the NGO so that now they can rent their own houses. They can maybe own their own house someday, right? In a, especially in a context where agricultural work has been absolutely decimated in a, a post-neoliberal and post-autocratic India, many of them can't rely on their traditional livelihoods. So the NGO is a form of economic and social mobility for them. But within this construct where they have very little opportunity to ever imagine a kind of global disposition, a brown savior disposition, even though in many cases they want to be that too. That's one of the points I make in the book, right? Like they aspire to be what say the CEO of, of Sahayaka uh, uh, Krish wants to be, right? Like they want that, but within this particular kind of caste politics and caste hierarchy, they're quite limited. And I should just also mention here, if we're really thinking about caste politics and caste hierarchies, Brahmins at the top, Vokaligas and Lingayats at the next level down. And then, of course, no Muslims in the organization, even though Karnataka's population of, of Muslims is at least 12%, and very few scheduled castes in, in the organization, all one or two. And I write about some of the, the caste politics that come up when uh, Dalits advocate for themselves within this NGO and the kind of impossibility of these leaders to be even to even be able to see the kind of caste politics that are playing out. Yeah, thank you for laying that complicated question out so clearly for us. Um, and, you know, since I get to host this podcast, I get to be a bit selfish. So I want to follow up with certain uh, figures that really stood out to me, mentors. And, you know, for me, it was very interesting to see how brown saviorism gets you know, gains purchase in among them in particular ways, especially among non-Brahmins. And we've talked about how, you know, that happens through aspirations towards mobility. And I want to learn a bit more about gender, right? So in the book, you talk about how mentors are often slotted into gendered spatial arrangements. And I'd love to hear more about the role of that and how they get engulfed into aspirations of brown saviorism. It's a really, really good question. Um, how will I answer this? Well, the simple answer, first and foremost, is to, again, just think about, I'm not really, I don't really rely on quantitative data a lot, but sometimes it can be illustrative, right? The first thing is to think about the composition of this NGO, right? Where 90% of the field workforce is at least male presenting, right? Only one out of 10 is a woman, right? So that's already telling you something about what's happening within this sector. Now, what's interesting for that about that for me is that the field working class, right? The mentoring class is doing work that we traditionally associate with feminized form of labor, right? If we think about a lot of these figures who are going to these schools, what they're doing is, you know, they're nurturing, they're caring, they're trying to inspire, make students curious, have them raise their hands, right? It's all this sort of care work that we have traditionally associated with women, right? And additionally is a feminized form of labor. So you got, you got this as a context already, right? That's going to create complicated tensions. One thing is, of course, we can see the value of the mentor's work um, related to the fact that it's associated with feminized forms of, of, of value, right? And feminized forms of labor. That means that while the brown savior can make their money, the person who's doing the technocratic work, the person who's, who's creating a phone app, right, is making X amount for that work. This form of work is not easily translated into economic terms, and the mentors feel that. In this case, the you know all of them feel the fact that they don't feel like they're getting 
what they deserve for the amount of labor they're putting into the organization, right? So a lot of the stories I tell have to do with the fact that they're constantly trying to email to like uh, get a higher salary, or they're trying to start their own NGO because then they think they can be in the more, you know, masculinized, technocratic position of leader, right? Rather than mentor. So on the one hand, you can see an uh, an actual salary, right? Uh, economic value associated with this labor because it's feminized labor. That's one. The second thing is you see it at the same time, a kind of replacement of actual women with men to do this feminized labor. If we're thinking about the education NGO sector. We're thinking about a sector who is working directly in schools. And we know if one thing we know, which is very similar in India to the United States, most of the labor force of a school are teachers who are women, right? I think in, I think the statistic is usually like over 80%, right? So you've got this idea here that an NGO run by all men, whose field workers are mostly men, have a better idea of how to help in a school setting than the women who are doing all that labor, right? To actually teach children, to actually get them to go to the next grade, who actually understand the, the village relations, the social relations, right? Extremely well, right? So this is a kind of ideological positioning already, right? That's extremely gendered. And we can see a kind of hierarchy that emerges where the NGO personnel is at, is at a higher level. Now, third, the third way you can really answer that question has to do with the stratifications between the mentoring class, right? Between the men and the women within that class. Now, we've are, I've already said several times that the, the mentors aspire to be brown saviors. Now, the next question, of course, to ask is which mentors aspire to be brown saviors? Well, it's all the men, right? All the men still see themselves in some way, right, related to... Uh, Sahayaka's brown saviors. They can go to Bangalore headquarters. They sort of go to the meetings with them. They ask questions. They want to learn the right skills. They're given a few more opportunities because they can travel back and forth freely on their motorcycles, on the bus. There's a story I tell about going, you know, all the way to Hubli Darvad, which is about like a uh, which is a long overnight bus ride, which they can all take, right? They can leave their families behind to do the care work in their households, right? While they learn these skills to aspire. On the other hand, the few women in the organization can't do that, right? They're not able to easily travel on motorcycles by themselves, right? There are safety issues that they feel, right, about doing that work. They can't travel as far, right, because they're generally doing a lot more care work at home. So they're not going back and forth between a village, right, to Bangalore and coming back just to do a professional development, right, just to get some face time with the leadership. And so that's, by definition, going to limit their ability to find mobility in the NGO itself, and therefore they have different strategies by which to aspire. I, get, I tell the story of, of Lakshmi, who uh, it was one of my, uh, you know, one of the people who I really learned a lot from, right, and who really sort of like embraced me in this field work to kind of explain to me some of these dynamics. And, you know, what she was clear to let me know is it's not about a lack of aspiration, therefore. It's about the fact that women in these spaces have to change how they understand what their aspirations can be based on the constraints and limitations. And so for her, her, her way of thinking about it was like, okay, maybe I could get a job in Bangalore eventually, but what I can definitely do is I can accumulate enough wealth to get my own little internet center in my village, right? That's what I can do. And that will allow me a particular kind of mobility, particular kind of status in a community, right? Without having to travel long distances and without needing some of those quote unquote skills that the other mentors are getting. So those are kind of three ways you can think about the gender politics of the NGO as it was playing out in, in my field work at least. Yeah, that's such a good um, way to put it. And you know, so far in our conversation, you know, the way you lay out gender this way, it seems like the elephant in the room is you, <laughs> right? Like your <laughs> position within all that. Oh, and I yeah. mean, oh, in yeah. the book, it's not so much of an elephant. You address it right away with 
um, what you call a nervous ethnography, right? And I'll let you tell us what it is. But I just wanted to let you know how much I appreciated the honesty that went into this term, be it, you know, about your gendered positionality or your position in terms of caste or mobility, certain kinds of mobility, which we've already discussed. So I want to let you speak to the nerves that went into this book and how being so frank about your nervousness allowed you to position yourself. Well, I guess I'm just going to start by, by saying this, which is, I am extremely thankful that I had amazing women and I've always had amazing women all around me to push me in my family, my partner, brown feminists, black feminists everywhere who basically push conversations that I only scratch the surface of, right? That should be said first and foremost. And that itself makes me nervous, right? The, the, the questions they asked, the pushback I got, got over, you know, 10, 12 years of this project is the only reason, right, that my project was able to take the shape it did. Because they asked questions that constantly put me, made me uncomfortable, appropriately so, constantly made me question what I was doing in the project, the positions I was taking, who I was associating and why, right? And that nervous energy, I think, early on in my project was something that I ran away from, right? And we can talk about this more in the future. But, you know, early on, as an ethnographer, we have this tendency to fall into the things that make us most comfortable, right? Where we feel like, you know, we have some power, right? And where we feel how we have some authority, right? And that's basically what we gravitate towards and therefore what we write about, right? And that's how I was too, right? Like I was a young scholar. I was somebody who really wanted to prove that I, I knew what I was talking about. And so if you look at like my dissertation, it hardly says anything at all if you, if you ask me. And that is because I wasn't following my nerves. I wasn't taking seriously those moments of discomfort that were coming in very different, in different contexts, in different ways, right? Which then allow you to think differently about the project itself, about who you are in that project, and then what you actually, where, what you should be saying about a project, right? Where, uh, you know, a lot of what I learn comes out of reflexive anthropology and ethnography, and and uh, you know, we're taught that we're supposed to think about our position in the field, right? Seems very easy when you read it in the book, right? It seems very easy when your professor tells you, right? But when it actually comes down to understanding what that means, it's extremely complicated and extremely difficult. And a lot, you know, one of the things I say, perhaps too explicitly, some might say in the book, is that I feel that, you know, the critique of, of the anthropologist as being unreflexive has, read to a fa- has led to a facile reflexivity, right? One where you just say, well, I am this, 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 and therefore, you know, we're good. We're good, right? I, I said I'm a brown person. I said I'm dominant caste. We're done, right? With having to address what that means. But actually, the nervousness comes from when you feel the encounter, you feel your position playing out in the field in all these different ways, and somebody calls you out on it, or somebody says something that you're to, you know you're complicit in, right? And you have to figure out why uh, they're saying that, what it says about the encounter, and therefore what it says about the context. You know, I, 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 the book starts with this idea of, of blood politics, right? And a field worker and a couple others in leadership positions claiming that it's okay for me to do this work because it's in my blood, right? And I would say the first few times I heard it, I, one, didn't think about it at all, right? And then two, uh, avoided it because it was so uncomfortable to think about that my access being linked somehow to my blood, right? That they were saying, oh, and it could have meant a lot of things. It's in your blood because you're, you know, you're a Brahmin man. It's in your blood because you're, uh, you're from the United States who has all these specific skills, right? You're a brown man. It's in your blood because you're just a man, right? And therefore you're allowed to have a special access to spaces that other people are not, are foreclosed to them, public spaces, you know, multiple kinds of public spheres. And so that is what nervous ethnography is asking us to attend to. What does that mean? 
Why was I uncomfortable? What was I complicit in? I talk about like a racist joke that a mentor tells me about uh, the Muslim populations in Karnataka. And again, that's a moment that usually is avoided in fieldwork, right? It's the irrelevant moment where we're going to hide the kind of complicities that come with being told that joke and even being uh, in the position to listen to it. The only reason that mentor was willing to tell me that joke was because he already pegged me as a Hindu, right? Whether or not I was from the United States or not, right? And so I think that is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about nervous ethnography. I'm talking about that from a fieldwork perspective, but also when you come back home and you hear all these critiques from people who know far more than you, right? Because their positions allow them to see things that you could never see and hear things that you don't hear and to take that seriously, right? And to take that not as something to dismiss, but as something to lean into. And that's very difficult. I'm still learning to do that to to this day. But what what I do say is that if I'm doing my work correctly, I should be nervous till the day I die. Even though I find that depressing <laughs> to be nervous until we die, I mean, I am certainly <laughs> very thankful to, you know, all the women who pushed you to think this way. And I think, you know, the book is really an important engagement with, you know, positionality not being a list of, you know, what we are, but what we do and also how we feel and how we think about how we feel and how we share that, right? Um, yeah, and, you know, in terms of sort Can of... Can I just say something about that? Yeah, of course. Uh, I, I just want to say something about uh, the fear of being nervous, right? Because actually, um, one of the things that I find with my students a lot, right, is um, they've been taught from a very early age to go with certainty, right? That they should know what the answers are, and if not, they should avoid it, right? They should not ask themselves hard questions, right? And and therefore, what happens is they curtail their curiosity and exploration, right? Because they're so afraid of failing. They're so afraid of the feeling that comes with learning. And another way of talking about nervous ethnography is to say that you don't learn unless you're uncomfortable, right? You don't learn something new unless you're placed in positions that challenge your points of view. Right. And so actually, uh, if, uh, if you think about it from a perspective of like muscle memory, right, or developing a skill, right, to be nervous is not necessarily to be feared. Right. It's a, a kind of percent, a kind of processual approach to living that allows us to, you know, not be so judgmental of ourselves. Right. To recognize that we're fallible and that, you know, we're, we're in process of learning something new and therefore we're going to mess up and that's OK. Right. It's not supposed to freeze us. That's the main thing. Right. What it's supposed to do is allow us to ask great questions to be curious enough to find new answers and to know that like we don't have all the answers at any moment in our lives. So for me, it's kind of liberation because as an academic, we're told that we have to have all the answers all the time, right? And when you write this book, it has to be perfect and exact and there has to be no mistakes. But of course, there's going to be mistakes. This is a moment in time, right? And I'm going to change a lot over the next 10 years. And that means whatever I said here may no longer hold true. And that makes me extremely nervous, obviously, because somebody's going to make me ask me a question about that at some point. And be like, well, you said this and, you know, that's not right. And I'm like, you know what? Yeah, that wasn't right. That was how I interpreted the situation at that moment. Right. And lots changed. And I, I may have been wrong about some things. I may be right about some things. And so I, I just want to put that caveat because I don't want I don't want people coming away from this book being afraid of their nerves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. And I think. Yeah, I think that was a very important addition because also like, you know, thinking about learning from nerves can be its own sort of hero's journey, right? Like, you know, and can be problematic in itself as something that's good. But I think it's important to add that, no, you don't, you might not come out of it with all the answers and that's okay. And that's an ongoing process. Um yeah and you know something else that i was curious about you know in as we're talking about different processes of learning were your encounters with dara 
during your field work, like especially the kinds that you know NGO leaders were interested in and pr- produce versus what you were interested in. So something that really stuck out to me, for example, was um, the app that Krish was developing, which maybe you can tell to us about. Um, but you know, you're also very frank about in your words, salivating about the kinds of data that it might produce for you versus, you know, what he, in fact, was interested in. So I'm just very curious about how you negotiated producing or seeking ethnographic data in a context where, you know, data was being produced in ways that you were critical of or ways that excited you. Mm. Yeah, so, you know, one of the major backdrops, I think, of this text is digital panaceas, right? The fact that we imagine a particular kind of technological innovation, not we, but in a, in a particular set of uh, particular set of actors, imagine digital technologies as the way to solve the problems of the world, right? And so that's kind of a global discourse. It, it, it shows itself in, for example, the IC4, ICT4D space, Information Communication Technologies for Development space, right? Where it's these technologies that are going to solve the problem of poverty. All children are now going to be educated and find mobility if we just get the right app, Right. That's a context that that is beyond, you know, the NGO is working in. And the second kind of context attached to that is uh, India's own digital India movement. Right. Where the idea of getting Internet access for all, you know, IT hubs is is equivalent to what we might have imagined as road infrastructures, highways in the past. Right. Like you need those. Uh, IT infrastructure so that everybody can access all the information they need to find mobility, right? So this is sort of a context that already divides who's going to be able to join as a savior or not, right? Who are the haves nots of digital technology and who are the haves of digital technology, right? Now, the second piece about this sort of uh, infrastructure here is that digital tools and technological data collection has the advantage of following in line with a long slew of technocratic innovations that are apolitical, right? They're neutral. And so that allows you to say that, look, I can do this kind of change work without ever ever getting into history, race, caste, capitalism, right? Colonialism. I don't need that because I've got a technology and a data that's neutral. As long as I collect that data, I can assess the problem and then I can solve the problem, right? And so, I mean, this is not a new question, right? This idea of technocrats trying to skirt history, right, as they try to develop societies, right? It's just that the digital tools have become the new means to do that work. And so what that then means is that those who have those skills are by definition going to be those skills and those values, those ideologies are going to be lifted. And in this case, you see like a figure like Krish, the the CEO of of Sahayaka, who is ready and willing, right? He's a computer scientist, computer engineer. He is extremely well-versed in that, right? He created his own transaction processing system company, right? That made lots of money, and uh, sold it. So he feels very comfortable in that digital space and in a digital creation world, right? So it's not surprising that what he wants to bring to the table, right, to the education NGO sector is a digitizing of it because he sees that as something that he can add value, right, because of who he is as a maker. And because that's already valued, he knows he can get, he can get funds for the organization that way. And he truly does believe that that's going to help these children. And I should say that, you know, one of the caveats I always make when I talk about uh, the folks from Sahayaka is all of them do care deeply, right? They don't do this work just as like in a kind of cynical way, right? They do this work because they believe that this work can truly help. And in some micro ways, in these in particular kind of reformist ways, it actually might. On the other hand, what usually happens is it reinforces systems, right, that actually are doing an even greater disservice to the same populations they're trying to help, right? That's kind of the contradiction that plays out. And digital technologies are are really the, the center of that, right? And so what does Krish do, 
right? Krish wants to use his phone app to collect an immense amount of data, right? First, he he feels like the the there's an inefficiency in already existing data collection in this university. You know, it used to be that not in this university, in this NGO, right? Like uh, it used to be that field workers had to go, right? Had to collect in notepads, like finding out how many pieces of paper were being used. Because one of uh, Sayaka's early projects was like, okay, we're just going to give schools more paper and see if students actually use that to do uh, more math, more more reading, you know, and literacy campaigns. And we need to co- co- figure out like, what that's going to do and how that's doing that, right? So people would be by hand collecting massive amounts of data, right? And Krish found this as an inefficiency. But what Krish didn't really recognize is that a lot of that that in-person data collection created interpersonal relationships, right? I talk a lot about how the field workers, like the reason why there were if any successes, right, with the NGO is because the field workers were creating deep relationships with students and teachers and headmasters, right? That then made them made those students feel like they can do more and these they did have an advocate and those relational forms of uh, mobility, right? Which goes back to the kind of question of you know gendered labor, right? The problem with that is Chris can't capture that as hard data, right? And so, you know, and so there's a gap that is produced when he translates everything to this phone app, which captures the hard data of test results, right? Or attendance, right? Stuff like this, or cleanliness even, as I as I kind of get into at the end, end of the book, right? But you can't capture that relationship. You can't capture that text message between a mentor and a parent to make sure that that student ends up in ends up in class, right? And so you see this, this really sad shift in the, in the position of mentors to be more like auditors, right? Pure data collectors where they're, they're collecting data and checking to see and assessing to see if, you know, uh, schools are following the protocols as outlined by the NGO. So that's, that's sort of the way data ends up becoming a huge vector for a lot of the, what I talk about, especially in the third part of the book. But of course, for me, which was the second part of your question. Um, I, you know, I, I admit freely that at the beginning of my field work, you know, I had an extreme extractivist streak. You know, I was an ethnographer who wanted to collect data. I wanted the answers. I wanted to have fodder for my ethnography, right? And so a lot of the kinds of complicities I participated in had to do with my my interest in gaining access, one, and my interest in gaining interesting forms of data, right? And so, you know, the the real story I tell that has to do with that has to do with um, a a kind of innovation that uh, Chris chooses to to make to the app, which is to add an image and uh, to add an image and audio feature to the app. Right. So Krish himself only cares about the hard data, which is the numbers. But I but he sees me taking lots of photographs in the field. I'm a visual anthropologist. Right. So uh, I'm, I'm filming a lot and he's curious about it. And we have a conversation. And, you know, through that conversation, he decides to add this feature where mentors can add a little audio clip or add a little image feature to the to the to the thing right, to the uh, to their data collection. And I, of course, am extremely excited about this because I want the data, right? I'm like, this is great. I'm not thinking about the ethics as I should have, right, in the way that I should have at that moment. I'm just thinking like, uh, you know, I, I tell him, no, this could be better than the quantitative data. You could get some of this relational stuff through that, right? But I'm not thinking about how he's going to interpret it and what he's going to uh, uh imagine these photos and this photo or audio features to be right so i'm trying to collect the data i do get some of this data and it's it's compelling but what comes out of that is a conversation later where he just basically tells me i don't care about this feature and i ask him like well well why have this feature in the first place says well actually you know the mentors are bored right because the data collection is so not relational right it's not doing the kind of work 
of community building that they thought they were signing up for. So if I can just add a feature like this, it'll like allow them to feel like they're part of the process in a more deeper way. But really what he's doing is a manipulating, you know, their labor time, right? And making them feel like they're doing a kind of work that um, matters to them, even though it's just a distraction, right? When they already have enough data collections to do, they don't really need to do this, right? But he wants to manipulate a little bit of their perception of time and perception of purpose through these kind of features. Yeah, I really appreciated, you know, you sharing how, you know, this kind of data was on or the possibility of it was so exciting for you. Usually these are moments that get redacted, as you said. Um, But I'm also very intrigued by how you used redaction, right? Especially when it comes to images. And, you know, I see you as a scholar who's very intentional about them. Uh, In the book, you know, we see people deemed as quote-unquote objects of help, refusing to be in front of cameras. We also see you redacting certain images um, in line with these refusals. So can you speak to how refusal and redaction figured into your approach to the imagery of brown saviors and their others? Oof. Uh, <laughs> it's perhaps one of my, maybe my favorite question in a way. Um, partially because I was trained as a multimodal anthropologist, you know, really thinking about what film, photography, uh, sound can do that text cannot, right? But associated with that, really nervous and in in this case i would say nervous to the point of almost being frozen at a point in my research about the ethics of these kinds of audiovisual productions right like how can i take images participatory or not and share them with audiences that have very little on the ground context right and it was a perpetual fear i had when i was in the field I, I loved uh, the participatory nature of a lot of the, the stuff we did. You know, when I was out of school, sort of thinking about critiques of the NGO and looking at the NGO from the perspective of, of students and, and children, uh, we had a great time creating photographs, you know, together, shared them with their families, shared them in their school. And that part of the project felt very ethically sound and ethically grounded. It was when it became time to share some of that work outside of that context that all of the the sort of ethical questions emerged, right? What images were was I allowed to share? Should I share any of it at all? Even if I share it with the, the best ethical intentions, how are people going to interpret these images? And, you know, this is in a context where uh, images of, Uh, women and children, impoverished brown women and children circulate ubiquitously within NGO spaces and, and become justifications for interventions, right? So this is the sense in which you're talking about the objectified uh, objectification of people is the is the fact that they're only objects that illustrate the point of need, right? And that was something that I was I was extremely conscious of, Uh, When I started field work, I had already sort of uh, been writing about that, thinking about that a lot. And therefore, when I got to the field and felt like I was doing particular kinds of work, I I didn't know how to do it. So that's kind of the context, right? I ended up figuring out my approach to redaction and refusal over the next three or four years, really starting with a different project which was a project that was a critique of the uh, University of Pennsylvania's uh, Morton uh, Morton uh, uh, Crania collection, right? Lots of controversy has been ongoing about human remains, right? About uh, these places maintaining collections that are people's ancestors. It's a violent thing. Lots of anthropology students go into these spaces and then encounter these. Uh, these ancestors, right? And of course, the critiques have been endless. And so I was tasked with making a film about this collection and I didn't know what to do, honestly. Like I, 
didn't know whether I could show any of the human remains. I didn't know if I, it was enough to just put a like a, a tag at the beginning and then make sure my critiques were explicit and clear, right? I didn't know if it would be even watchable if I eliminated all the human remains from a film about human remains, right? So one of the tactics I tried that didn't make it into that film was a strategy of redaction where I wanted folks to recognize that um, what they usually see is not what they should be seeing, right? And it's actually something that is a, a violence when you're uh, consuming images like those of human remains, right? And so you see in the book kind of like uh, a moment where I show you a redacted picture of a, a, a human remain of an ancestor from, from Bengal, right? And... Um, and kind of my grappling with how to even show that image, which I feel like does the work of, of, of allowing the reader to recognize the kind of racism of particular kinds of projects, right? Without adding to the violence of it. And that sort of knowledge of redaction, which also, by the way, another, another uh, reason I came to was I was reading Tina Camp's uh, excellent book, Listening to Images. And, you know, if you look at the front cover of her book, it's all redacted passport photographs, right? Where you don't see the faces of the folks who she's thinking with, right? About, you know, uh, the vibrations and connections of archives to ourselves and stuff like that. So you don't really need the image of the person, right? In order to feel something about uh, a kind of encounter with an image, right? And so that learning comes out in the book where you see no images of, of anybody, right? Including participants from my field work. Uh, they're all redacted at different moments in the book so that what we focus on is what they want us to understand about the context, whether it's, you know, a toilet, right? Where a boy is standing in front of the toilet, that boy is redacted. But what we're supposed to focus on is the critique of uh, the way that toilet infrastructures propagate a particular kind of caste supremacy in India, right? Or whether it's the beginning of the book where uh, Nagaraj, one of my, my favorite student participants who's in the Ninth Standard, wants to share an image, right, that he has created, right? But he wants to share an image that, one, shows his creativity, his aesthetic prowess, right, the way he knows how to use the camera, right, which is not something that generally he gets to showcase, right? He is always showcased as the object, as you said, not as the subject creating. And secondly, because that image very clearly maintained anonymity, right? It's a shadow. It's a beautiful image. I love that image. I've, I've thought with it for many years, you know, and uh, that refusal to show himself, right, reminds us as anthropologists that we're not always supposed to make everything transparent. Some, some insights come from opacity, Right, thinking with you know Edward Eduardo Glissant, right, and that idea of opacity, but then that's not a lack of insight, right? The refusal is an insight, right? The redaction allows us to say something that otherwise we would almost would be impossible to say because we'd be so focused on the object, the objectification in the image itself. So you know that's a that's a a, a learning that's come through. Lots of nervousness. There was a few years where I refused to show any images at all because I just was stuck. You know, I was frozen. I didn't feel like it could work, right? And I and I didn't think I was doing right by my participants by showing their images. And over time, I was able to, to figure out a way that really felt ethical and really made the arguments I wanted to make using images. Yeah, thank you, Arjun, for really, you know, leading us through seeing what we don't see and what comes into you know not producing particular kind of images i really appreciate that um so you no know, to conclude our conversation i want to take a cue from your conclusion if that makes sense i really you know usually i struggle so much with conclusions you know often they come across to me as afterthoughts but yours really stood out to me in that I think it was really excellent in showing the kinds of work you hope for the book to take on as it circulates in the world. So, you know, I want to ask you what is next for you first, you know, what you want the book to do um, as it spends time in this world. And 
where to go from there? What are you thinking, researching, teaching about after the book? Oh, it's a great question. That conclusion uh, was the last thing I wrote and took me two years on its own. You know, I, I really had to go through many, many, many drafts. Of course, the whole book, which, you know, uh, had many failures before it finally got accepted anywhere. But the conclusion especially was a struggle. So I resonate with, with that, right? Like, what do you say when a book is coming to an end, right? And one way that I sort of liberated myself was recognizing that the ending is a beginning, right? It's the beginning of a journey that is just starting something new for me. And what I want people to take away, I think, is a couple of things as they, they leave the book. One thing is we're in a extreme moment of fascism, authoritarianism, and supremacies that are clashing all over the world, right? And a lot of times we know that there's a problem, but we haven't really thought about it as a historically specific, regionally specific set of conversations. And therefore we miss some of the points. And in this case, when we're talking about brown peoples, it's easy to already see themselves on the right side of history, right? Because brownness in a lot of ways already uh, assumes a kind of anti-colonial struggle, assumes that we've had to fight against impoverishment, underdevelopment discourses, et cetera, et cetera. And therefore, we are by definition on the right side of history, regardless of our values, our ideologies, how we imagine of aspiration in the world, et cetera, et cetera. And so the first thing is, to question those frameworks and those categories because those categories themselves emerge out of colonial social relations. Brownness is a colonial category, right? It's a category that obscures as much as it reveals. And so that's kind of step one. Step two is we're in a moment of Hindutva in, in India and a moment where lots of right-wing Savarna Americans are coming to prominence in the United States, right? Vivek Ramaswamy, for example, is the, the, the newest in line of, of many. And they get away with a lot because they're able to hide behind a kind of brownness discourse, right? To understand those figures who are going to come into more and more prominence requires us to think across race and caste on a global scale. Right. And a lot of us get provincialized in a kind of methodological nationalism where we're only thinking about the United States. Or we're only thinking about India and we're not thinking about circulations that allow for these figures to rise in different contexts. Right. So for us to understand why Hindutva has the rhetoric it does, which is strategic. Right. On the one hand, Hindutva, just like a, a kind of brown savior figure, is is claiming anti-colonial. Right. It's also claiming anti-colonial. But it's claiming anti-colonial to facilitate an autocratic regime, right? An authoritarian regime, a regime that's, you know, killing many, many, many Muslims in its midst, right? And so that is something I want us to get to, right? Think across race and caste. Think about what's happening historically in the present in relationship to other actors. And we might say, like, uh, the, the key takeaway of the whole book is don't see liberalism as the opposite of authoritarianism, right? See these as continuities. In some, in, in many moments, we move, we were on one side of the coin, which is liberal forms of discourse. On other sides, we're on the authoritarian side of the discourse. But what categories are they using? Are they reifying the same categories of difference? On the one side, we hail that difference. On the other side, we try to obliterate that difference. If the categories are the same, then we're not doing anything different. So that's three. Four, don't be frozen, right? I think I said this earlier and I, I'll say it again because I see this in my students a lot, right? They also come into our classrooms with an extreme fixed mindset, you know, like they, they come in thinking that they're good at something, bad at something, that they're intellectual or not. And that itself is a byproduct of scientific racist histories, right? Fixed capacities tied to your body. Right. And so challenging those means that we can't be frozen by failure. We can't be fr frozen by not knowing the answer or asking more challenging questions. That's where we have to go because we're growing. Right. We're changing. And so I, I spend a lot of time in the book 
at the end saying like, look, I think about my students a lot when I'm writing this book and I want them to take away that what, whatever institutional context they're in, whether it's the NGO sector or the university, which we're both in and we know how problematic that space is, right? Or something else, they're going to have to do a lot of work, right? Like there's no panacea institutional space. It's all neocolonial space. So what they have to do is generate the ability to question and challenge constantly, because that's the only thing they, they have going for them when they enter these spaces, which especially for our students of color or black and brown students, where they're likely going to feel, you know, uh, invisible, a, a kind of oppression, a kind of violation epistemically or otherwise, a lot of the time. So, you know, that's kind of like where I would end the book. Uh, my next project, I want to do something fun. So I'm really trying to do <laughs> a, a project on sports. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, uh, so I'm thinking still in the poverty alleviation space, but uh, really thinking about sport and the, the bodies of the poor. In this case, looking at basketball and uh, a kind of set of diasporic uh, Indians who are trying to use basketball as a way of uh, thinking about poverty alleviation. And that brings up really interesting questions of, you know, um, why basketball? What does it say about the sporting body? Brings up intersections of brownness and blackness, right? Like how is blackness being uh, uh, reified through these imaginaries that brown peoples, because in this case, again, it's all Indian Americans who are imagining basketball, right? in the process of trying to uh, save, quote unquote, the other through through this sport. So I'm excited about that project. That's got some time to go before I before I really get it off the ground. And I have a really I have some fun uh, side projects. And the film project I'm doing right now has to do is a re a rethinking of Bandung, the Afro Asian um, conference in 1955, really thinking about the 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 politics of post-colonialism and nation building and critiquing some of the, the facile ideas of solidarity that were, that were uh, being uh, sort of discussed and imagined at that moment and really getting at the, the fissures and hierarchies that are produced uh, as that moment of nation building emerges. So that's the, the film project. And between those two, I think I'm, I've got a lot on my plate. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like it, but yeah, I'm personally very excited to read them and watch them. But for now, thank you very much, Arjun, for joining us and for your insights. Oh, thank you so much, Alize. And we will talk very soon, I hope. This is your host, Alize Arjun. This discussion of brown saviors and their others, race, caste, labor, and the global politics of help in India, published by Duke University Press in 2023, is brought to you by the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.